Take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of John, chapter 2. John, in the New Testament, one of the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. There we go. John, chapter 2. We're starting a new series today called Signs. And um, I was thinking about this week that we, um, one of the shows that my family and I have watched a little bit recently is a show called The Amazing Race. Anybody here ever watched The Amazing Race? All right, there's, uh, we've been watching this season of The Amazing Race. It's been kind of a crazy one because they started it pre-COVID and then shut down for like a year and a half and came back. And so we've been watching. But one of the things that always helps determine, for those of you who don't know, it's a literally a race around the world. Teams of two go on. It's a reality show on CBS. And teams of two go and they, they, they go out trying to race around the world, win competitions, win tasks, all that kind of stuff. But one of the things that oftentimes determines the winners and losers of a leg or of the race are how well they can navigate directions. And this year in particular, because of the way the COVID situation was, they had to drive themselves everywhere around Europe. And the other day they were in um, Thessaloniki. You know what Thessaloniki is? Thessalonica, right? It's First Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians. And they were there and they were talking about the fact that they could not read the signs because all the signs were... In Greek. And I thought about, can you imagine trying to drive in a place where you have, they don't, they can't use their phones, they can't put in, you know, their GPS on their phones or on the cars. They have to use an old school, somebody sitting in the back with a paper map. You might remember those you couldn't fold up after it was over, could never get it back, right? My, my in-laws house, they always had one of those. It was always under the cushion of a chair in a specific spot that ran McNally. Don't know why it was there, but when they would say, where, how far is it from so-and-so to so-and-so, Phil would go over and say, let me check, and would pull out. If you were sitting on the mat, you had, on the chair, you had to get up because the Rand McNally was coming out. Right? So you have those maps, and they're navigating, and they can't read the signs. And signs can be really helpful to you if they're helpful, right? They can be really not helpful if they're not. In fact, I saw a few signs this week that showed me, like, I don't know what to do with that, right? Like that would not be good. Or this was a hotel sign I saw that was a room number. You can go to the next one, I think, Josh. Oh, not that one. All right. This is, by the way, this is a sign in Alaska. Don't know how many falling coconuts there are in Alaska, but there is a uh, a place, a resort in Alaska uh, near, the, near, near the national park that they had problems with people running off the dirt, windy road going up to it. And so they put non-sequitur signs on the road for people to pay attention. Like this one or the next one, which just tells you a moose may be here. And I think we have one more that's my favorite, which is the way it feels in summer around here sometimes, Right? So signs can be helpful if they're helpful, but they cannot be if they're not. Well, this next few weeks, seven weeks exactly, we're going to talk about the signs that are recorded in the book of John that tell us who Jesus is. 
Now we know that's the purpose John did in giving us these signs. He calls them signs. There were words for miracles in the um, New Testament era that he could have used different than this word. There were words that just talked about ma- powerful things. A word called dunamis that was about the power that was exhibited. Or there were words about miracles that actually happening, supernatural things. But John continually refers to the miracles, to the wonder working that uh, Jesus does as signs. And the reason is, he tells us, and if, you get your, if you've got your Bibles open to John chapter 2, hold your finger there or bookmark it on your phone or whatever you do. And look over at John chapter 20. This is the end of the book, John chapter 20, verse 30 and 31. And he says, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples that are not written in this book. He says there are all kinds of signs that Jesus did, all kinds of miracles, powerful things that Jesus did. Verse 31. But these are written, the signs that John included in this, in this book are written so that you may believe. So why did he tell us about the signs? Are so that we may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So John tells us at the end what the purpose is of the signs at the beginning. There are people that divide the book of John. You can kind of easily divide it into two sections, almost in two halves. And some people talk about the first half or the majority of his life and all the way up until the last week of his life. And one of the things you'll notice if you read the book of John is that the second half of John is almost, it's it's the longest description of the last week of Jesus' life, but half of his book is dedicated to the Sunday through Sunday of the Passover week, the Holy Week, the celebration that we do around Easter of the triumphal entry all the way to the Lord's Supper, to the crucifixion, and then to the resurrection. And so he spends half of his book describing that specific week. So you can divide it that way, that the first part is everything up until the week, and the second part is the week. The other scholars have a way of describing the two books as the book of signs and the book of glory. The first half are the book of the signs of who Jesus is. Seven things, seven Miracles, seven displays that show us who Jesus is and reveal the glory of Jesus. And then the book of glory, which is the last week of his life, is the week in which Jesus receives the glory that is due unto his name, culminating in the resurrection on Sunday. So what we're going to do from now until the point of the week of Easter, so for seven weeks, We are going to discuss the signs that show us who Jesus is. That reveal the glory of Jesus. And I want to tell you that if you want to write down the point of every sermon that I'm going to have for the next seven weeks, it is simply this. Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and if you believe in Him, you will have eternal life. Because that's the point that the signs make according to John. But instead of just going home and doing that, we're going to talk about them a little bit. All right? Is that okay? Is that okay? Thank you. All right. John chapter 2, starting in verse 1. On the third day, a wedding took place in Cana of Galilee, and Jesus' mother was there. 
And Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding as well. And when the wine ran out, Jesus' mother told him, they don't have any wine. Now, let's stop for a moment and just talk about that. So weddings were a big deal in Jewish culture. They were a huge deal. Most weddings lasted for about a week or could last up to a week. Most of them lasted at least several days, five or six days, but could last up to a week. And it was a big time party. It was a privilege to be invited and you were expected to be invited if you're part of the community or the family or the group. Now, a couple of things we know about this particular wedding is that Mary was there and apparently Mary had some function at the wedding if she's telling Jesus or some kind of, of interest in the wedding, some skin in the game, if you will, some some thing that happened to tie her to the family at this wedding. Now, most scholars think that this probably means that Mary is part of the family of whoever's getting married. And if Mary's part of the family, that means that Jesus is too. And so most people think that what's happening here is that Mary's, it may be her sister or her cousin or somebody, somebody is getting married. More than likely, it's the groom's family that she's a part of because the groom's family were required to make sure that everybody had what they needed for the week and specifically the wine had to be taken care of. And at some point in the festivities, I don't know if it was the first day, the sixth day, what was going on. We know that this was just a couple of days after Jesus had been and called disciples unto himself and had said, in fact, that just a, a few verses before this is when they say, what good can come from Nazareth? Do you know that story? A couple of guys, what, what could ever come good from Nazareth? And basically just says, come and see. And Jesus says, you will see things that you will not believe. And that ends at the end of chapter one. Chapter two begins just a couple of days later. And they get to the wedding. They're invited. At this point, by the way, he doesn't have 12 disciples according to the timelines that we have. At this point, he probably has around five. And they show up at the wedding. They're there. They're celebrating. And Mary comes to Jesus at some point and says, they've run out of wine. A couple of kind of on the edge issues that are happening here that we kind of need to talk about before we focus in on the main thing that's going to happen in the miracle. I do think it's significant, and I think that John wrote it this way specifically because of its significance, that the first miracle that Jesus ever performs, and it will tell us that at the end, this is not like Jesus had done miracles around the house for Mary. It's not like he had magically cleaned the house for her, Right? It tells us this is the first miracle he performed. I think it's significant that the first miracle that Jesus performs is as a wedding. For a couple of reasons. When you look at kind of the outline of the entire book of John, we talked about the book of signs and the book of glory. But in the book of signs itself, Jesus does a couple of things there. He starts by going to Jewish institutions, the Jewish way of life, and he kind of recast that. He puts a new vision, a new spin, and says the old has passed, the new has come, okay? So he does that, and then he goes to the Jewish festivals and does the same kind of thing. We'll see that over the weeks ahead. And so as he's doing this, he's casting a vision for all the things that have been made in the Old Testament. I have come to fulfill and renew and make right. So here's a question for you. What's the first Jewish institution put in place in the Bible? It happens in Genesis chapter 2. Marriage, right? Who officiated the first wedding? 
That's a pretty good guy to have there, right? I mean, if you're going to ask, I mean, I've done a few weddings in my life. If someone said, hey, listen, God is going to do our wedding. Now, today I'd probably think we need to have a conversation about what that means. Uh, but God is their officiant. And the first institution that is there, the first institution that is put in place before the church, before the nation of Israel, is Adam and Eve and marriage. Now, the fall comes after that even. So we know that marriage is part of a perfected humanity. Right? And so I think it's important that what's happening here is he is starting at the very institution that began it all. Jesus' ministry is going to remake everything. I do also think that what's happening in this particular passage is that he is again showing the importance of marriage and what it means for us as believers in Jesus for how God has called his people to live and to move and to be as the people of God, that marriage is an important part of that. Now we know from the New Testament teaching that is to come and from Jesus' teaching, it is not the ultimate In fact, Paul will teach pretty significantly that there is glory and honor in people that never marry. There is glory and honor that people that stay in a marriage and that sometimes that doesn't work. And that's a discussion for a whole nother day. That God's intention is always that marriage is something that is glorifying and honoring to him and that it is an institution that is to be valued and fought for at every possible place. So I think it is significant that the first miracle that Jesus is going to perform is at a wedding. The second kind of ancillary, secondary, on-the-side issue we need to talk about before we move on to the miracle itself is, this is real wine. I know I'm in a Baptist church, right? And sometimes it's been argued that it's different. It was different than what we have today in some ways, but this is wine, Alcoholic beverage that is being drunk. I've done a past, I've done a message on why I don't personally take alcohol, why I think it's right for me not to take alcohol, why I think it's advisable for most people not to drink alcohol, and we could have another one of those discussions another day. But it's also important that when we read scripture and that we are truthful what's happening here, that we admit what's here. And what's here is this is an alcoholic beverage being served at a wedding called wine. Now, it would have been diluted and they diluted it not because they were particularly concerned about the alcoholic content. They diluted it because of what? It went further. In fact, at the end of this, you're going to hear that they brought out the good stuff when Jesus made the new wine, that it was the good stuff. Why did you bring that out last? You're supposed to bring that out first so people get dumb to it, and then you bring the cheap stuff out afterwards. In fact, they said that they would dilute it sometimes two to three to four times, and so the content of alcohol would have been minimal compared to most drinks that are alcoholic in our society. And they recognized the difference between the two. When we were living in Ripley, we had Eli. Um, it was Eli, and we had Luke had just been born, and Eli went to, to preschool at a, our church in Ripley had a preschool, and he went to preschool there. And we went for our first parent-teacher meeting with our preschool son, right? And the first thing that always flabbergasted us was that they would begin to describe, uh, this happens with all of our children, probably happened with some of your children, in glowing terms about their how great they are, and you're like, okay, do you have the right? I'm like, we don't see that at home, right? How polite they are, they never talk back. Maybe your kids are perfect at home, but 
when we got to the teacher, one of the teachers said to us, said, Any, anything we need to know? She goes, no. She goes, but I will tell you something you might want to be aware of. He loves the juice here. It's like, he loves the juice here. Like, what do you use? And she told us, and then we realized something. Elon was our first child. Yeah, you know there's a difference, right? Do you know what we did with our first child and his juice? We cut it in half with water. Because you don't want too much juice for your kid. You know what we did not do for the rest of our kids? Cut their juice in half with water. And Eli got to preschool and was like, now this is the good stuff right here. Give me some of that juice, right? You think, what does a preschool juice have to do with wine? I'm just saying that this is the real stuff, all right? And so here's the dilemma. If they ran out of wine, it would have been an embarrassment to the family. And not just to the mom and dad and the groom. It would have been an embarrassment to the entire family. You have to think that they lived in smaller communities. They lived not in places of eight, nine, ten thousand. They would have lived in a close-knit group of people. And weddings came around only so often. And oftentimes it was local people, married local people. You didn't go off to college and meet someone from California and you've got a wedding of someone from California and Tennessee. Or you have meet someone from, from a foreign country and people are getting married. That didn't happen in this day and time. And so everybody would have known everybody. And when it was your turn to give the wedding, you were expected to live up to the standard of the community. And if you did not, it was an embarrassment and shame on your entire family. And so Mary is there, and she is just like, I don't know what to do. Now, people have asked the question, what did Mary expect from Jesus? Some people say, well, she knew he could do miracles. We don't have any evidence that Jesus did any miracles anywhere. In fact, like I said, it says this is his first. What we do think, or what I do think is happening here partially is, that Jesus would have been, from all indications, and we don't have any, this isn't something that scripturally it says it plainly, but from everything we have in scripture, it appears that Joseph is no longer on the scene, probably because of death. And so if that had taken place, let's say two years, three years, four years, eight years earlier, then Mary would have depended upon Jesus to be the man and the leader of her family and of her household during that time. She would have leaned on him. We know that before he went into ministry, if you will, at the age of 30 or around the age of 30, that he would have worked in the father's trade. He would have been a craftsman. He would have been someone who had been a builder. He would have provided for the family. And she is probably just saying to him in some way, what are we going to do and what can, we, what can you do about it? I don't think she envisioned Jesus is going to suddenly do a miracle that's going to be recorded for the rest of history to discuss. She would see, just like you would say, my mother, if we were somewhere and there was something going on and she thought I could help the situation, she would come and say, hey, Lyle, can, this is happening. And so in the midst of that, Jesus gives a statement, a response, that just to be perfectly honest, is one of the most difficult statements of Jesus to interpret and understand. For what has this concern of yours to do with me, woman? Jesus asked. My hour has not yet come. What do you immediately think just when you hear that? Let me, let me just ask you it this way. What if moms in the room, one of your children came up to you and said, what does it have to do with me, woman? Not my thing. 
Right? How would that how would that go over? Well, that go over well? Yeah. Now let me just say that that this isn't as strong as we might think of it as strong. So I mean, it's not it's not like it would be in my situation if if I said this to my mom or one of my children said this to Susan. What does it matter to me, woman? Like it doesn't. It's not that harsh. But I'll also say this: there are words he could have used that were different than the word he does that were more gentle. So this is a term that showed respect, but distance. From a woman. And so he basically looks at her and says, Why does that concern me? Let me ask you this. We talked about that she had leaned on Jesus, that probably, that, that from what we can understand of their culture and who they were, that he had been a part of her life, that they had been there together, that she, he had worked for her. We know later in the gospel that his brothers did not think highly of what decision he had made about going into ministry, right? Remember they came to him and said, quit this and come home? Y'all remember that? So what we know is, in this passage of Scripture, we are post the moment when Jesus has looked his mother in the eye and said, the mission I have to accomplish is more important than the family you have to support. Now, Now that sounds really harsh, especially for Southerners. But he basically said, what God has called me to do takes precedence over my duty to my family. And I think, after reading of this and looking at it and all the things, first I will tell you, I am not sure, and when we get to heaven, we can have a conversation with Mary and Jesus about what was going on here. But I think part of what's happening here is like, this family's reputation is no longer my primary concern. And he uses a term that would have been seen by his mom as a little bit of a rebuke to say there is now a difference in my mission and my relationship. And then the phrase at the end, my hour has not yet come. Anytime you have that in Scripture, anytime you have that in Scripture, in the New Testament, in John particularly, he is talking about the hour of his crucifixion and ultimate resurrection. Does anybody remember where else Jesus refers to Mary with this word, woman? On the cross. Standing before who? John. And he says, woman, behold your son. Son, behold your mother. You know what's interesting to me about this? I didn't see this anywhere, and I'm always real hesitant to talk about stuff I don't see in other commentaries or anything. But, I mean, John wrote this. He has to know those two are connected. What's interesting is the first time he says, Woman, my hour has not yet come. The second time he uses that phrase, The hour is upon him. The point he's making is, What you're asking of me begins the clock on the ministry that I'll do. Mary shifts her tone from dependence upon her familiar, on her family ties, and simply says to the people standing around, do whatever he says. It goes from a question of family roles and relationship 
So the description that we kind of have here is that Mary is saying in faith, whatever he wants to do, do. Not as my son, not as a member of this family, saving the reputation of the family, but as who he is completely. And then we get to the miracle. Jesus looks at the servants. Verse 6 says, Now six stone water jars had been there for Jewish purification. That was part of their process. It would have tied directly, we'll talk about this in a moment, to their ceremonial laws. And each contained 20 or 30 gallons. Fill the jars with water, Jesus told them, so they filled them to the brim. That's an important little statement. Then he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the head waiter. And they did. And when the head waiter tasted the water after it had become wine, he did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. He called the groom and told him, everyone sets out the wine first, then after people are drunk, the inferior, but you have kept the fine wine until now. Verse 11, Jesus did this, the first of his signs, in Cana of Galilee. So he revealed his glory, and his disciples believed in him. Remember John chapter 20? What was the purpose of the signs? So the people would know and see that he is the Messiah. He tells us the first sign, the five that were there, they saw it. So here's the question. What does this particular sign teach us about who Jesus is and what he has come to do? This is what the first sign teaches us. This is the only point we have today. If you're writing down notes, this is the only thing you can write down if you want to. And it's simply this. When Jesus comes, the old has gone, the new has come. The old has gone and the new has come. This is a particular moment when Jesus is transitioning and saying that the ways of the Old Testament, the ways of the Old Covenant, I am here to fulfill and renew and make in a new way. The prophets in the Old Testament would speak constantly about the fact that when the Messiah came, that the land would or there would be an abundance of wine overflowing from vats. And so when they take these six purification water stone jars and they fill them to the brim, to the very top, the symbolic nature is that the time has now come for Jesus to show that the Messiah is here, that all that could have been done in the purification has been done, but the new one that comes is here to change it all and to remake it into something new and better and fresher. And so when Jesus fills, when they fill all those things and the water turns to wine as they give it to the man who's in charge of the event, the old has gone and the new has come. In fact, there are some that say that's why Jesus responded to his mom the way that he did. That when he looked at her and she said, she in her mind was just thinking, we've got a physical here and now problem that we don't have enough wine. But Jesus, knowing the symbolism of the Old Testament and knowing what is coming, realizes that this is the moment that he's about to announce that all things are being made new. 
that he is transforming the water that was to purify into the wine that gladdens and overflows. That he is the Messiah, the King of kings, the Lord of lords that has come to rescue the people. Although they had a different interpretation, understanding of that, Jesus is coming to rescue their souls. And this is a sign and a symbol that the old is gone and the new has come. And there can't be a better definition of what it really means to fall in love and be accepting of Jesus' grace in your life than the old is taken away and the new has come. When we accept Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, He takes our sin and our guilt and our shame and He roofs them as far as the east is from the west and He gives us a new life of freedom and joy. I was reading a a, a pastor from about 50 years ago sermon on this particular text. And in that sermon, he used a word we don't use a lot. But he said in there, his three points were were that, that that miracle that happens with the water into wine was for the good of the people. And he says at the end, it was for the glory of Christ. But then he says it was for the gladdening of their hearts. There are not a lot of us go around, you know what, I really need to have my heart gladdened. Or I don't get up and preach and say, this is for the gladdening of your heart. But the point that he makes is that it is for the joy that we have in life. That there is a joy in following the Lord that you cannot find anywhere else. Everything else is watered down compared to the joy of Jesus When we accept Jesus Christ as our Savior, immediately He makes us as if we have never sinned before the Lord. Now, we also have this process of growing into Jesus. And as we grow more and more in our relationship with Him, and He chastens us and He whittles us down to what we need to be, as He encourages us and strengthens us, as He does that more and more, and we grow in our knowledge and our following and obedience of Him, the old goes and the new comes. And there is transformation that happens in our lives. And the point of this particular sign is that Jesus has come to transform our hearts. The old has gone and the new has come. When you read this, I can't help but think of Jesus repurposing the fruit of the vine, the wine, at the Last Supper. When he acknowledged that the old way was transforming into a new covenant that would be spilled by his blood and that we could be a part of where we have complete access, bold access to the Father because of what Jesus has done. The most important part of this entire passage comes in verse 11. Because it reminds us of the purpose for it and that it is his signs that were shown to reveal His glory. So here's my question to you today as we finish this message. First of all, have you accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? Have you allowed Him to remove the guilt and the shame of your life, to forgive you of your sins? He has died on the cross to make that possible. It just requires us to believe in Him and what He has done for us. 
Jesus says that today can be the day of salvation. And so if you're here today and you've never accepted Jesus as your Savior, and you live with the guilt, you've chased other fulfillments that never seem to measure up. As you chase after one, after another, after another, as we talked about last week, and you find that they are not satisfactory in any way, you know that the ultimate source of fulfillment is in Jesus. And today, you're ready to take that step of accepting Him as your Lord and Savior. Secondly, maybe you're here today and you've done that. You've accepted Jesus as your Savior, but you've never followed Him in baptism. You've never followed in that act of obedience. Jesus was baptized right before this to start His ministry, and He did it as a symbolism to join with us. John did it for the repentance of sins, but the baptism that we do is symbolic, basically showing what we declared as the only main point of this passage, which is the old has gone and the new is here. If you haven't done that in obedience to Jesus, maybe you just need to come and say, Pastor, I'm ready, to, I'm ready to do that. I'm ready to be baptized. But maybe you're here today and you've accepted Jesus as your Savior. You've been baptized. You're confident in that. You're assured in that. But we're in that process of where Jesus is making us new. We have been saved. We are being saved. And there are parts of you of that old life that are continually still trying to, to, to reach you, that you give into on a regular basis. And today you need to turn that over to the Lord. I had a real cool experience last Sunday night. We went to Noah's ordination service at the church at First Baptist Pleasant View where he is. And his worship leader at First Baptist Pleasant View um, is a Christian songwriter. Some of you may remember the um, old Christian rock band Petra. So he was one of the early members of Petra, all right, and he wrote songs for lots of people. Wrote, um, anyways, was, was a Christian songwriter. And I found out through conversation with Noah that he wrote one of my favorite all-time songs from when I was growing up. It's by a guy named Steve Camp. Some of you may not know Steve. Most of you probably don't know Steve Camp. But Steve Camp was a Christian artist in the late 80s, early 90s, and he had a song that I first became aware of on his greatest hits CD called He's All You Need. And I got to have a conversation with the writer of that song last week because there's a line in the middle of it that I thought about this week with the old God and the new there that many of us are still in that process, all of us are still in that process, this short, this side of heaven, of being transformed into who God's called us to be. And there are things in our lives that just trip us up. And there's a line in that song that basically just says, when you give in to that familiar sin, he's all you need. I talked about how impactful that was on me as a teenager and a college student. I remember playing that when I was doing college ministry at Inglewood Baptist Church in Jackson, Tennessee. As uh, We didn't have live music in the Bible study I was doing. It was a pseudo-invitation in that moment and how powerful it was. And I just thought about this week. There's so many people, so many believers that have allowed things from the old to remain and aren't giving it over to the Lord. And the flesh and our sin nature is preventing us from seeing all that God wants to do. I need to be reminded this week 
that when Jesus comes, the old is gone, the new is here. And the guilt and the shame that you live with can be a thing of the past because He forgives you and makes it new. In just a moment, we're going to have a time of response. If you're here and you need to accept Jesus as your Savior, I'd love to have a conversation with you. If you're here and you want to join the church or be baptized or any of those decisions, I'd love to have a conversation with you. If you're here and you need to come pray here at the front and make this into an altar where you meet the Lord, then this is the time for you to do that as well. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we are thankful that with you the old is gone and the new has come. And Lord, as you made that declaration in this first sign in the book of John, we are thankful for the reality that when the hour came for you, you went to the cross for us. You gave your life as a sacrifice and on the third day you rose again. And the victory we have in that as followers and believers in you, Lord, I am overwhelmed with the gratefulness of my heart. Lord, I pray if there's anyone here that does not know you as their Savior, that has not made that decision to follow you yet, that right now you would make them uncomfortable and that they would understand their need for you, that they need to do that. Maybe it's somebody that's been a long-time church member, that's been in church all their lives, but they realize they don't have that personal relationship. They've never been saved by you. Lord, I pray if there are those that need to be baptized, that you would make that clear to them. If there are those that just have things in their lives that are part of their old nature that you're making new and getting rid of, Lord, that you would do that here and now. Help them to, to confess that and to walk in the light of you. Jesus, we pray that above all else that your name is the name that is lifted high in this place, that your kingdom is the only thing that we advance in this place for the sake of your glory. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.